Hello, everyone, and welcome to Transmissible, a public health podcast. I am your host, Jessica Stahl, and I've spent most of my career as a CDC contractor, and I am now in my very last, like last two weeks of my graduate program in epidemiology. I'm almost done. It is the final stretch. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you know that I've been kind of counting this down, and I'm just really excited to be here. This is Transmissible. This is my public health passion project. I have wanted to do this for years, and I am just so excited to be doing it. Today's episode is a little bit heavy, but very interesting. We are going to be covering the public health challenges during wartime or in war. This was so interesting to research, very heavy, very just dark. They say war is hell, and that definitely is true in the public health sphere of it as well. I was reading a lot of first-person accounts and just, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're going to be covering is just tragic. I feel like most things in public health have tragic elements to it, but this one just has so many different layers. It was fascinating to research. It was, fun is not the right word, but it was one of those things where you start deep diving and you just can't stop. Um, I had some flights to take this past month and I was downloading executive summaries and all this reading material and I just had a really good time researching this topic, but it's just heavy. Um, You know, some of these stories, like I was sitting on the plane reading about it and I was kind of shielding it with my hand because it was such a, the one I was reading, the one I'm thinking of, I was reading about it and it was so tragic. I didn't want the person sitting next to me to just like look over and think this was my casual reading. I mean, I guess it kind of was, but it, you know, there's just so much evil that takes place in war and under the fog of war. We're going to talk a little bit about the fog of war, but um, yeah, I'm excited to share with everyone what I have learned. And I just, I definitely feel the weight of responsibility. I feel that with all these topics um, as As this podcast gets older and the more episodes I do, I feel the weight of responsibility of portraying these circumstances and these spaces accurately. It it feels like a big task, especially when I'm um, doing this solo and I don't have an expert sitting next to me to, you know, go back and forth with or to interview. So um, that is part of the podcasting experience. It's I've said this in the past episodes, but this is definitely a skill that I'm trying to learn. And um, yeah, so that's this episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you really like it. And I hope that you learn something. One of the things, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but one of the things I found with this topic in particular is that it was kind of hard to find information. Um, Government source sites have it, you know, WHO, um, you know, CDC, a lot of the kind of the the ones we think of, you know, the UN. But there's not a lot of material. With um, the past two episodes, rabies, there's a ton. Typhus, a little bit less, but I could turn on a TED Talk or I could turn on even just like someone sitting on YouTube doing exactly what I'm doing. But with this topic, I had a really hard time finding like the science of public health challenges during war times. I found multiple stories about very specific wars um, or genocides or 
especially, you know, like World War II, there's, there was some obvious public health issues happening there. And so it was hard to get like the study of public health challenges in wartime um, in a single source. And so I found that to be really interesting and quite frankly, not what I was expecting because war is so common. And so, um, I mean, it is something that has been there throughout history. So I kind of thought there would be more information on this. Maybe this podcast is me adding to the information out there, um, just in a broad sense, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So yeah, we're going to get into it. I keep getting a notification on, I record in GarageBand and it keeps saying your disc is almost full. So hopefully halfway through this does not cut off. (laughs) If it does, I will let you guys know, but um, yeah, I'm just excited to get into it. Wanted to kind of give a little update on where I am with my capstone project. Um, As I covered in the last episode's I've been working on my capstone manuscript and my capstone executive summary. My topic is um, the association between witnessing a particularly horrific event on the morning of 9-11 in lower Manhattan and poor physical health outcomes 20 years later, because we're about 20 years out from 9-11. It has been so interesting. It's kind of a random topic for me. You know, infectious disease is more my my corner, but we had to pick our capstone projects in early September and I was watching, you know, stuff online and I watched a 60 minutes on the firefighters of 9-11 and I was riveted and I thought it would be an interesting topic. The, um, they, it kind of goes by different names, but the World Trade Center illness, the 9-11 illnesses, have been getting more media attention now. And it's kind of like there was the first wave of deaths from the actual attacks. And then now there are waves of deaths and um, I guess injuries from, you know, the dust cloud and the PTSD and all this kind of stuff. And so it has been very interesting to write this manuscript. I turned in my draft. So it's Basically, the the full version, um, hopefully my professor goes easy on me because I think it's pretty good, but, you know, when you turn something in, you never, you never quite know um, how much redlining is going to happen, but, but it has been very fun to do and very interesting and kind of like this podcast episode, interesting and sad at the same time. I feel like when you're working or studying within, under the umbrella, I guess, of public health, Things are interesting and sad at the same time, Um, and I feel like that's how it should be. So that's kind of my school update. We Life update is we're leaving for Alaska tomorrow. (laughs) It's one of the reasons I'm recording now because I was like, I got to get this episode out before we go to Alaska because we're going to be there for a week, and I didn't want to wait a week. You know, I wanted it to be fresh in my head, Um, so this time tomorrow, we will be, I guess this time we'll be heading to the airport. When we arrive in Anchorage, it is supposed to be between nine degrees and two degrees Fahrenheit. So (laughs) hopefully our snow jackets that we use for Colorado weather will be sufficient for Anchorage end of November weather, but we are very excited for that. It's going to be a really good time. Um, Just looking forward to it. Jack, our son, this will be his 15th flight 
I, I count both like flight there is one, flight back is two because when you have a baby, it's like those are two different flights. Um, when we come back, it will be his 16th flight in 15 months and he has done great. I don't know if there are new parents or future parents that are going to listen to this, but I have just been so happy with how easy it has been flying with a baby. My husband and I are huge travelers, both domestically and internationally. And um, when I got pregnant, we made a pact that we're going to keep traveling. And we have done that. And I'm now 15 months out. I am so glad we did. So that is my word. Those are my words of encouragement for baby travel. It's not that bad. Babies kind of like planes, like it's like a big sound machine, you know, like um, like white noise machines. It's kind of like one of those. Um, it, it's just not that bad. So that's my <laughs> that's my PSA. But yeah, I guess it's time to get into it. At some point, I will have guests on here, and when we shoot the breeze, it'll be a little bit more back and forth. But um, for now, it is just about me. And just once again, I appreciate everyone being here and listening to this. Like I said, this is my passion project. I'm going to do this whether people listen or not, but I appreciate those who are listening. I um, had kind of a bump in viewership a couple weeks ago. And if you're here from that, or if you are here from the beginning or just tuning in, I just really appreciate you being here with me on this journey. I would also like to do a little legal disclosure. I have it in um, the actual podcast like text, but nothing I say here reflects my current, past, future employers or universities. These are just my opinions. This is me independently as a public health professional doing research on topics and recording in my back office and putting it on the internet. This is not medical advice. This is not scientific advice. Um, please seek professional advice from professionals who that is their job. That's not my job. I'm here just to, just to ramble. So that's my legal disclaimer. Um, so yeah, let's get into it. I am going to reheat my coffee before we sit back cozy up and learn about public health challenges during war. One second, be right back. All right, y'all, my coffee has been heated up. I have a cozy cardigan. The vibes have been perfected. Let's jump into it. First, I want to just briefly go over uh, what is war and how is it defined. And then I want to talk about why it is important to study public health in the space of war. If you want kind of an interesting deep dive, look up the definition of war. There are tons of them different countries, different um, dictionaries. War is not something that you can just rapidly copy and paste the definition of. Personally, and it was actually the top hit on Google, so I think I'm not the only person who feels that way. Personally, I liked the Australian Army Research Center's definition of war, and that is that it is a conflict carried on by force of arms between nations or states or between parties within a state. Now, I think you could elaborate on that a little bit. That sometimes it's parties within a state versus parties within a different state, not necessarily within the same state. Um, they're describing it like a civil war. Um, but yeah, I thought this was a good definition. But there are lots. It's, it's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting 15 minutes on the internet if you would like it. 
Now, why is studying public health during wartime important? And personally, I think it is very important. In my opinion, public health is supposed to be grounded in empathy. And when we study an issue, we can better help those who are currently in that state or will be in the future. A lot of public health is future looking. It's taking what we know now, using the data we're collecting now, and looking into the future. I think that's very important for um, public health challenges during war. Also, public health professionals, some, and I saw this in quite a few um, of the sites I was looking at, have been left out of the war conversations. And I think public health professionals should be in those conversations because we have a niche worldview. We can see stuff on a different level than um, you know, other type of strategists. And public health professionals can better spearhead um, relief efforts or better equipped countries that are maybe at risk of war if this area is being studied well and if it has the resources to be studied well. One of the things, and we'll talk more about this a little bit later, but one of the things that hinders the study of public health challenges during wartime is the fog of war. And um, back in the day, not, not really that back in the day, I still kind of play it, but um, I played Age of Empires. I don't know if anyone else has played that. I personally love video games. And the fog of war in that game, it keeps the map unviewable until um, your little army can go over there and then it illuminates it. And I think that's a really good example of like a, a game version of the fog of war. When a war is happening, professionals outside the country or even inside the country cannot see what's going on necessarily in the same way you could during peacetime. I also looked up, this is the definition episode, the definition of fog in war. Um, and this comes from the U.S. Army's website. It says, fog, in keeping with popular understanding of the concept, refers to the ambiguous nature of information in war and the difficulties encountered in maximizing good information. And so basically, you know, data collection goes down. It's hard to see what's actually going on on the ground when a war is actually taking place or a conflict is taking place. You know, electricity goes out, internet can go down. Um, it, it's just hard to have eyes on the situation, and therefore it's it's hard to have a super crystal clear look at this academic space. And I think that really contributes to why some of the information is hard. You have to kind of extrapolate what you know about peacetime and kind of what we know about human nature and the clues from after. Like we'll get into it later, but, um, you know, cervical cancer deaths spike after war. So you have to, you have to, think backwards. Okay, what is happening under the fog of war that after the war ends, cervical cancer deaths are spiking? Well, you could say a lot of things. That's one of my topics down the line, so we will get into that um, in a little bit. But those are good examples. hope that wasn't too wordy, but I feel like it's important to prime, um, prime the episode <laughs> before we get into the specifics, because war is if you're in the public health world, it's not necessarily something we're like super knowledgeable with, you know, we're not in the military. So that's kind of the prime. So the challenges that arise 
in times of war or during wartime. I have a bunch of them. I was trying to go back. I was going back and forth and I was like, should I rapidly say what they all are and then go back or just one by one? So I'm going to rapidly tell you my big, my big uh, headings and then we're going to go back. So number one, lack of clean water and food. Number two, lack of stable housing. Number three, disease spread. Number four, sexual crimes, quote unquote, survival sex and STD um, increases. Five, breakdown of data collections. Six, environmental issues. Seven, the kids. Eight, mental health. Um, and then nine, the soldiers specifically and their unique um, challenges. My episode is more the public health challenges on the ground for the civilians, for the lay people who are under the fog of war. But a lot of this would also apply to soldiers. So, so number one, and probably the, I would argue the main thing we think about when we think of public health challenges during wartime is lack of clean water and food. This is super important, not only for um, the immune system, just the population's immune system of having, you know, the nutrients that they need, but also you can get diseases, disease spread from lack of clean water, lack of clean food, lack of food in general. Um, you know, how does water get contaminated? How do you know, how does this happen? A lot of times it's when the water facility itself is targeted by the enemy, but it can also be, you know, in theory, you know, it can be an accident, but if, you know, the pipe gets hit, if the sanitation building gets hit, you know, if people can't show up to work to do their job to maintain, you know, everything starts to kind of break down when a nation is at war. And one of the things that gets hit because it is so vulnerable is the water supply and the supply chain for food. Now, what happens when water is dirty or you don't have enough food? Well, a lot of different diseases can pop up in the population, especially, or hitting children especially hard, or those who already have comorbidities or who, you know, are older. But cholera, dysentery, you know, biggies, hepatitis, that is seen in um, refugee camps that do not have clean water. And then the malaria death spike from lack of nutrition. So dirty water, it can get you sick, but also just, you know, not being healthy, not having clean food and vegetables and fruit and, you know, all the nutrients you need. Berry berry has been reported from several refugee populations that subsist on rice-based food rations. Now, beriberi is a thiamine deficiency. Again, this is kind of under the umbrella of malnutrition. Um, The most common deficiency syndrome, I thought this was interesting, in emergency-affected populations is a lack of vitamin A. So vitamin A deficiency, this can cause night blindness. This can cause um, a lot of other very tragic things. Scurvy is one. I feel like scurvy is a little bit more... um, in pop culture, I feel like, you know, when you're in elementary school, you learn about the pirates and scurvy and scurvy is basically a lack of vitamin C. And so kind of what I remember from being a kid is, you know, the pirates would bring limes or lemons on their boats to eat. 
or to get um, vitamin C, but they found that in 18, oh my gosh, 18, 1981 to 1982, an outbreak of more than 2,000 cases of scurvy occurred in a refugee camp in Somalia. So it is still, you know, we kind of think of it as an older thing, but, you know, from, from the past, but it is still something that can pop up, especially among refugee camps that are in just such a vulnerable spot. Now, you'll notice that I'm talking about refugee camps. One of the ways you can study public health challenges during war is to study refugee camps. And a lot of times they're easier to study because they are not in the epicenter of the war. You know, the, the people have been displaced, so sometimes they're even in a different country, but still experiencing a lot of the um, labor pains of war. So if you study a refugee camp, you can get kind of a better picture of what might be happening to people groups who are still in, you know, closer to the epicenter of war or under the fog of war. One of the ways the clean water and food shortages are helped, and this is, I think, where public health professionals are allowed into the conversation, is by bringing in aid, you know, the Red Cross, Red Crescent. Um, I feel like I'm coming, I'm coming blank, but there's a lot of, you know, nonprofits, summer government organization adjacent, some are, you know, religious-based, but they bring in, you know, bottles. I think, you know, we've seen those pictures. They bring in crates and crates of bottled water. They're bringing in food. You know, they're bringing in formula. Um, one of the things that I saw repeatedly mentioned on, you know, what you can do to help in these situations is encouraging breastfeeding because, you know, the baby doesn't have to drink the contaminated water if it can drink breast milk, but as we know, <laughs> breastfeeding, I say this from a, a standpoint of been there, breastfeeding is very challenging and I cannot imagine maintaining supply in warp. Stress affects it. Mom's lack of nutrition, lack of clean water herself affects it. So although that is obviously a great thing, I, there it, it's not a slam dunk. There are issues that can arise with breastfeeding, so they're bringing in formula, and that is one of the ways that the general public helps in these um, circumstances is by, you know, donating money for food and water. Number two, stable housing. Stable housing, kind of like food and clean water, affects everything. If you don't have a stable place to sleep at night, Every, everything is affected. Your immune system, your stress levels, safety from the elements, safety from people, you know, especially if you're a family, kids, like the vulnerability, whether the victims of war are sleeping outside or they're, you know, overcrowding in tents or makeshift shelters, having stable housing is just so important to thriving as a human. And so when you're, you're lack, when you have a lack of stable housing, it's, it's kind of a trickle down effect. I did a project in my um, graduate program on, on a tsunami that had hit a small village in Southeast Asia. And basically they had to relocate all these people into these tents, you know, temporary housing tents. And the disease spread and the stress and the crime that happens in those tents is crazy because I mean think about it do you want to live in a tent with 
hundreds of people from like your area, you don't know these people. You know what I mean? It's hard to get adequate heating. It's hard to get adequate cooling, bathroom facilities, access to the bathroom. If there is, I mean, what if there's one toilet for a hundred people and these are hundred people you don't know? It's just a disaster. They also um, have studied temporary housing of refugees and they found that in addition to the, the heat issues and the cold issues, there's also issues with dampness and mold. A lot of these places are built quickly and they don't expect people to live there very long. So they don't, you know, really invest in the quality and stable housing. I mean, I put it up there with lack of clean water and food as just one of the major tragedies that happens to the innocent civilians when a war hits. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more um, in the next bullet point, which is disease spread and overcrowding is a huge aspect of disease spread. So number three, disease spread. <laughs> My first sub bullet under that is overcrowding. Disease spread is one of the biggies that hits these innocent, vulnerable populations and overcrowding is one of the huge contributors to it. Like I was just kind of talking about, you know, if you have a tent of hundreds of people, you have one toilet, you know, people aren't going to use that toilet if they really have to go and they can't get to it. So you start having, you know, feces on the floor. You have malnutrition already among the populations. So the immune systems are down you know, viruses like COVID, I mean, think of COVID rapidly spreading through these refugee tents, refugee camps or shelters. They're just, there's not enough breathing room to get away from other groups, other families to stop disease. So it's going to spread like a wildfire. If you listen to my typhus episode, we talked about um, fleas and ticks. Again, that a big part of that was overcrowding because, you know, the fleas or the lice would lay, not, I said ticks, I meant lice, I meant lice and fleas. The fleas, oh my gosh, I'm getting my bugs. <laughs> the lice <laughs> would lay their eggs within dirty clothing. And when it's cold, you're layering it. So the eggs had a nice warm spot to lay their eggs. And then they start populating even if you are washing and sanitizing a certain group of people's clothes, if you have a large, larger group, it's still going to spread. It's going to get recontaminated. It's really hard to stay on top of it. That's why typhus spreads so rapidly through ships. You know, the sailors and the clothes and the wool clothes, clothing that was layered in cold temperatures and in prisons. Again, it's very similar. There just isn't the level of sanitation. There isn't enough breathing room. It, it's a whole thing. My um, paper in my graduate program on it, basically my solution was instead of these big tents, you need like a ton of little tents if you're going to do tenting as the solution for temporary housing. Um, I was writing it. I've been, I've been in this program a while. So I was doing it during COVID, and my main thing was covid spread prevention. But I mean, this could be anything. Also, speaking of disease spread, one of the reasons, I should have said this at the beginning of the podcast, one of the reasons I wanted to cover this is during COVID and during the invasion of Ukraine, 
by Russia. I was on Twitter. Your girl really likes Twitter. I've got like a Twitter and it's now called X, but I still call it Twitter. I've got a little bit of a Twitter addiction. There's nothing I love more than sitting down with a cup of coffee and like scrolling through the news on Twitter. But basically someone tweeted during the time when the Ukrainian civilians were hiding in the subway tunnels um, because of the bombing and stuff, bombings and stuff. They were hiding down there and a public health professional, she tweeted, you know, in about two weeks, we're going to see a COVID increase. I can't remember her exact wording. Basically, we're going to get cases of COVID after this. And people were dragging her so hard. How can you think about COVID during a time like this? All you guys think about is COVID, like blah, blah, blah. And I remember sitting there reading it and thinking, but it, but she's right. There are hundreds of people packed in the subway. And if a couple of those people have COVID, it's going to go like a wildfire. And I was so surprised that, I mean, I guess I wasn't that surprised, but that the reaction from the public was such a judgment. How can you, I'm just on forget, how could you think about COVID during this? And that encapsulates the entire reason why I want to do this episode is you have to think about disease spread, about public health issues like that during war, because they don't sleep. Public health doesn't sleep. Diseases don't sleep. Viruses don't sleep. It Just because something bigger is happening doesn't mean there is not an underlying risk from things that are always present in society. And I just thought that was really interesting. I probably should have put that at the very beginning of the episode of why I chose this one, but I think when something really big is happening, like a war, you, you, it feels like well, we've got bigger fish to fry. I'm trying not to get hit by a bomb. Why am I thinking about my vitamin A consumption? And I really think that's where the public health professionals should be invited into this space because, you know, personally, I'm probably not thinking about my vitamin A consumption when I'm trying to avoid a bomb. But eventually stuff catches up in the most heartbreaking ways. And if you have professionals that are saying, okay, if we can give out these items to this group and just, you know, then they don't have to think about it. That is where the public health professional really, really shines and comes in. I don't know about shines. I, public health, people who work in public health don't get a lot of credit. You kind of are told that in these graduate programs at the very beginning. Like if you're doing your job well, no one will think there's a need for your job because the threat is not there. Um, there's a lot of professions like that. Public health is one of them. But that was my tangent on overcrowding. Um, but disease spread. Let's keep going with it. Meningitis, TB, these are thing, things. These are diseases that um, pop up with overcrowding. With overcrowding, you also are talking about displaced populations. People are going on foot. People are going in caravans. Um, the stress of that, the physical wear and tear, the walking, the elements. Also, just proximity to the war itself, proximity to animals. Um, you know, going back to episode two, rabies. Well, if these dogs aren't getting their rabies vaccinations because we got bigger fish to fry of avoiding these bombs. And then you have these people groups, you know, walking 
literally, to a different country, and you have these dogs that are not vaccinated for rabies, well, now you have a clash point. You know, it it just, it, it snowballs. It, it's a tragic snowball. With disease spread, one of my other sub-bullets is I just have water slash food, but basically malnutrition. Disease spreads rampantly when there's malnutrition. It's something that, you know, in 2023 in the West, we don't really talk about malnutrition that much. If anything, we're talking about the opposite. You know, America has um, its battle with obesity and, and kind of weight, but malnutrition is just, it, especially for the kids, the poor kids um, and the older people and those with comorbidities or chronic illnesses. It's just, it's like pouring gasoline on a situation. So in conclusion, disease spread is a tragic snowball that happens under the fog of war during war times. I mean, even, I feel like I can just keep deep diving this. You're not able to get your childhood vaccines. Even simple things like that if we had, I'm sitting here in Denver, Colorado. If I had some of these things, you know, I might go to the hospital and get an IV. You just can't do that. You don't have access to the basic medical care that you would in a non-war time. So things that would not be a killer all of a sudden become a killer. And, you know, a lot of the work that public health professionals do is they come in with just like rehydration stations. I mean, simple, supportive medical care can make a world of difference during this time. And um, I feel like I could almost do an entire episode on like just the different diseases that spread during these times. Um, We'll talk about it a little bit later, but, you know, STDs, they spread rapidly in war for a multitude of reasons, whether it's sexual assaults, lack of, you know, safe sex items, um, or just as simple as if you think you're going to die or you think there's a strong possibility that you're going to die from this war, you might be a little bit more reckless with your behavior. I feel like that was the topic of a lot of my lectures in my graduate program was they would look at these populations that kind of had that dead man walking mentality and then they would make decisions whether it's alcohol, smoking, you know, quote unquote reckless behavior would rapidly increase. And so the death rate, the heart disease, the suicide, like some of these things skyrocket and the root issue is the war, but it's, it's more the mental health mentality behind the war that dictates the behavior that increases the risk. And so I thought that was really interesting. Another sub point of disease spread within war and under the fog of war is, and we kind of talked about it, a lot of these kind of like overlap, but is just mosquitoes as a whole. If you're outside more, if there is rubble, you know, if a building gets bombed and there's standing water, your proximity to mosquitoes, you know, if your house is gone, mosquitoes are the deadliest, what is that like BuzzFeed thing? I feel like I've seen it in pop culture. Like the dead, it's like the quiz. What is the deadliest animal in the world? And it's the mosquito, you know, it's an insect, but so all of a sudden you're within proximity to these mosquitoes, you know, you maybe can't get your malaria meds, all these things. So that's another aspect of disease spread. It can kind of go under um, the food category because malnutrition 
you know, really affects the outcomes of malaria um, infections, but it also could kind of go under the stable housing because if you're in your house, you know, your proximity to the mosquitoes is likely lessened. But if you're talking about disease spread, you can't, can't get away from um, mosquitoes and malaria. We also kind of already nodded to it you know, dogs and rabies, and you're just, you don't have that cushion away from the elements that you may have, not necessarily did have, but may have had prior to the war. And also, final bullet point under disease spread is just, it has been said that the national immune system goes down when there's a war. So like we said earlier, something that would usually not have been a killer, all of a sudden, you know, becomes a killer because your immune system's down from whether it's your mental health, your lack of nutrition, your stress level, you know, PTSD, what have it, you're just less able to fight these diseases. Some which would have been a doozy, you know, in a comfortable, cushy, non-war house, but also, you know, the ones that would have been a breeze, but now your body is just not able to handle it. My next bullet for public health challenges during wartime is, and I, I kind of went back and forth on what to name this, but I, I have just written sexual crimes, quote unquote, survival sex, and STD uptick. Basically, when a war is happening, rape is rampant, but also, the, like, I think what we think of it, I mean, I thought of it going into my research as it's rape from the enemy soldiers. But the reality is, and that, does happen. The reality is, is that the general government and societal law and order is crumbling. So the risk of sexual violence also comes from your neighbor, the guy down the street, because the law and order is breaking down. So we see sexual crimes rampantly. I have a quote, tragic quote from the Rwandan genocide, and it is, end quote, while exact numbers are not available, it is estimated that every surviving female had been raped and that they saw an HIV infection um, increase. So things like that, tragic, horrible things like that are just a reality in war. Another thing that I was reading about that was um, an interesting read, it was one of the things I was reading on the plane that I was like kind of covering. Um, is the increase of survival sex. And survival sex is usually, not always, usually done by a woman. A lot of times that woman is a mom. She has young children. And it's, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's if you don't have the money to pay for groceries, you might use sex as a form of currency. But I would also like to say it also could be that the store owner, because like we said, the law and order has kind of crumbled, isn't going to sell you the bread for money. He's demanding sex. And so that type of sexual assault and sexual interactions increases during a time of war. Another thing that was just kind of shouted out is parents are preoccupied. So teenagers are having more sex. A lot of times it's unprotected um, and STDs increase. There are thousands of shadows. This is one of the areas that was not hard to research of, um, you know, soldiers raping civilians or in the case of the American Civil War. I thought this was kind of interesting. General Hooker let in sex workers to the camp 
to increase soldier morale, and he is forever, his last name, Hooker, has forever been associated with sex work, also known as prostitution. So I thought that was interesting. I, you know, you kind of, pop culture, you hear the word hooker, and you don't know where it comes from. It comes from the general. Um, I feel like sex crimes, sexual assaults, rape, is something you think about when you think of war. When you're looking, when you're watching the news and there's a war going on, at least in my head, I'm thinking like, oh, like those poor women. There's, and it's not just women, but the data shows that it's mostly, it's majority women um, are being victims of rape, whether it's, you know, from the neighbor or the soldier. And then I mentioned it earlier, but they have found that cervical cancer deaths increase after the war has ended. Um, and I was reading about it in the article. It was a paper. I was reading about it. They didn't quite know why. Um, this is a great example. And they mentioned the fog of war. They don't know why. We can theorize, and they did theorize, that um, you know, access to health care, access to safe sex, um, rape, stuff like this, weakened immune system, um, were all prevalent. But it's hard to with data pinpoint the exact reason why. Personally, I think all the above. Um, I mean, as as much as like not being able to go get a pap smear. How are you going to go get a pap smear when your house is bombed, when you're trying to put food on the table? It's, it's the kind of stuff that takes a back seat when you have, quote unquote, bigger fish to fry. But then down the line, um, I hate the term catches up, but it, it catches up. And we see that in the data. Number five, my, my bullet point thing is breakdown of data collection. Now, I thought this was fascinating. This, this is more my area. I love epidemiology. I love data. And the data, uh, okay, the data from the ground during war is weak. It's challenging. We get decent data from refugee camps. I'd say we get good data from refugee camps. We get good data when it comes to the soldiers, but the the civilians under the fog of war, there's a breakdown in data collection for obvious reasons. You know, you're getting sick, you're not necessarily showing up to the doctor. You may not even have access to a hospital. You may not have a vehicle or a mode of transportation to get to the hospital. So, you know, people are dying, people are getting sick and recovering, and it is just not recorded. The data collectors are not there. Even if they are collecting data, you know, if the if the internet's down, if the electricity's down, just the infrastructure is crumbling and um it's kind of on the back burner. I feel like a lot of the issue, the public health issues that come out of war is because it's the back burner and it I mean it makes sense. We keep using the bombs as an example, but you know, if your hospital, if your house, if your school, if these are getting bombed, you know, your priority is not the data collection of dog rabies vaccinations. You know what I mean? It just doesn't seem as dire. And quite frankly, it's not in that moment, but, um, it does end up catching up. So I messed up with my bullet points. I forgot a bullet point and I think it's because it's something I can just so freely talk about, but we're going to add another one in. I'm going to say this is number six. I had environmental as number six, but my other number six, and I don't, I feel like it was here, but is the breakdown of healthcare infrastructure. 
Now, I'm a type 1 diabetic. This is the first thing I think about. When I'm watching the news and I'm, you know, watching Russia go into Ukraine, when I'm looking at a issue going on in the Middle East, I'm thinking about those type 1 diabetics because I know if I don't get my insulin, I'm going to die. Like, I I can't go. I was in Dallas this past weekend and my insulin got too warm. And I was going to be home in 10 hours. I could not wait that 10 hours to get home to get more insulin. It is that dire lack of insulin would get me way quicker than any of these other issues. And you throw a, a dysentery diagnosis on top of that, I'm a goner. So the, the breakdown of medical care, the access to pharmaceuticals, the access to medicine, that part is scary to me, but that is such a reality of war. Um, you know, having a baby. I mean, I feel like we've all seen pictures from a war zone and it's a mom who has given birth to a baby without assistance, without medical care, without medical assistance. You know, it's the diabetics, it's people with heart conditions. It's there, you know, there's so, there's a, you know, probably hundreds of things on that list where you need your medication, you need your chemotherapy, you need, you know, your treatment. And if you can't get to that, that's a whole other wave of deaths and just civilian destruction that comes. And like we kind of overlapped on this, but as simple as, you know, you need an IV. I mean, that was my issue during COVID is my concern was that I was going to get COVID. You know, I'm a type 1 diabetic and I was going to need an IV. I wasn't going to need anything fancy, but I was going to need an IV. Um, to keep me out of DKA. And when the hospitals were full, I was worried about that, you know, access to an IV. And that happens all over the world during these conflicts. I mean, that happens at baseline. You had a conflict on top of that, and it's just a disaster. So I wanted to make sure to get that in. I don't know where my bullet point went, but um, our true number six is environmental. This one kind of speaks for itself. I took three or four... I should have taken a couple more and I would have gotten a certificate, but environmental public health classes during my MPH. And I loved it. So interesting. But once you learn about environmental public health risks, it's hard to unsee them. I mean, even when we're looking for a place to live, I'm like looking up the proximity to, you know, processing plants and that kind of stuff. But environmental public health concerns are a really big deal during war. It's chemicals from the weapons. It's building damage and the toxins that come from that. You know, like I'm doing my manuscript, or I guess it's done. Um, I did my draft manuscript on, you know, 9-11. So many of the issues now, the 9-11 illnesses are coming from the toxins that were in the buildings when they collapsed. And they specifically were talking about the coating that is on the electrical wire and how when that burned and it got incinerated, you know, it aerosolized, it's in the air, and they breathed it in, the um, dust cloud coming out of the 9-11, or of the World Trade Center centers, um, was super alkaline. So it was, you know, doing damage to the lungs when you breathe it in, and that kind of stuff is happening in a war zone too. I mean, I I would argue 9-11 was a war zone. Um, So it's not just what you're breathing in, it's getting into the ground, it's leaching into the water, it's getting into the food, and it's staying for a long time thereafter. Living here in Denver, we have a couple um, environmental issue sites from 
like the 40s is from World War II. And it's like they're still contaminated <laughs> because some of these substances, you know, they don't just rapidly go away. So in addition to hurting the civilian, the civilians that are there, you know, breathing in the air, it also hurts the health of the population, you know, going beyond the war, maybe even after the war has ended. Highly recommend environmental public health if you want like a another deep dive kind of interesting topic. That's a really interesting one. Number seven, the kids. I just have the kids because it's such a big topic. That could be its entire own episode, but kids get screwed by war. They are so vulnerable. They it it just uh it sucks. Now after having a child myself, it just rips my heart out thinking about the kids. You know, the PTSD, the losing a caretaker, you know, the orphans that come out of these, the inability to cope with what's going on around you, the confusion of what's going on. They're more vulnerable to disease. They are more vulnerable to, you know, clean water issues, food shortages. Um, One thing that's really interesting is their education gets halted. So especially little girls, but they get, you know, kind of educationally chopped. And that has long-term um, effects. They are super vulnerable to acute respiratory infections. And I have a um, little quote here from a, refu- from a study of a refugee camp in Honduras in the 1980s. And it said that respiratory infections among children less than five years old were responsible for slightly greater than one in every five deaths during a three-year period. So they are super vulnerable to ARIs. That's acute respiratory infections. I did one of my big papers um, in my graduate program on respiratory infections among children under five in, um, you know, to be specific, in the slums of, I think it was in New Delhi, um, the vernacular there is a little tricky. We're getting away from using the word slums, but a lot of the the wording that is used now, I, I don't know if people know it yet. And so to be specific, I, I'm still calling them slums. In my paper, I talk about that um, and I ended up still calling them slums. But basically these kids are with mom. Mom is cooking in these tiny houses with poor ventilation. And depending on how she is cooking the food, the kids are more or slightly less susceptible to acute respiratory infections. If mom is using um, like wood to cook, you know, burning wood, they have a higher rate as opposed to if she's using like um, kerosene, like a, like a, a grill you turn on, um, it's a little bit lower. And that was a really interesting paper because what I found, well, I didn't find it. I wrote about the people who found it, but I, I did the research digging, is that, you know, the, the higher education of mom, the lower the risk of acute respiratory infections, and it was just a really interesting paper, but kids are super vulnerable to that outside of war, so especially during war, they're very vulnerable, um, and just the PTSD, the mental health, the just losing familial support, it just... It snowballs, and it just really is amplified in children. Number eight, I have mental health. This one is super obvious, I think. The mental healths of war are tragic, and they have long-term and short-term consequences. 
PTSD just, I feel like it can't be overstated. This is basically what I'm doing my capstone on, you know, the PTSD associated with 9-11, and it is still seen now 20 years later. And that was a singular event. So if you have years of war, the PTSD, it just accumulates, and um, it can obviously hinder their mental health, but it also hinders their physical health. In my paper, I cite that PTSD has been associated with higher levels of stroke, with heart issues, with just overall self-reported general health, and it just, you know, it, it, it just trickle-down effects snowballs, however you want to say it. It just really amplifies. Another thing we also talked about is the mental health mentality of I'm a dead man walking and how that leads to reckless decisions um, that is seen in the civilian population of war. And, um, you know, there's probably a clinical term for that I should have looked up other than dead man walking mentality. And if there is, I will issue a correction on my next episode. I kind of want to do like a correction corner um, situation because I know there at some point will be a someone who knows a lot more about this and they're going to be like, she's wrong on that point. And I want, I want you to tell me that. So, and then my goal is then to the next episode to go back and kind of do a little correction corner. Um, but yeah, the mental health toll of war just cannot be understated. And that adds to just the burden that goes on the civilians and the soldiers in these, um, circumstances. Finally, my ninth point, you could argue it's also the 10th because I snuck one in there, um, is the soldiers and the public health issues the soldiers are confronted with. A lot of these ones that we've talked about do apply to them, um, you know, food, water, mental health, um, STDs, environmental exposure, that kind of stuff. It also applies to them, but, you know, maybe in a different way. I would think we're all familiar with the, um, you know, our veterans and how they have, you know, struggles with mental health. And, you know, I think we hear about that in the news and how heartbreaking that is. And so it's like they, they go and they fight for our country and then they come back and they really need support. And um, that's professional support, social support, financial support. And that's so important to recovery. Um, one of the things I found in my paper from the 9-11 survivors is that, um, you know, financial and educational levels really dictated their outcomes. And part of that, the theory there is that they're able to get professional help. So as soldiers come back from war, professional help is really important. But the environmental exposure, um, hold on, I have to sneeze. Sorry, guys. Okay, I'm back. I cut it <laughs> so I could sneeze. I did not want to do that on, um, not on camera. What's this called? On microphone, I guess. So I spared you guys from that. But um, yeah, just the soldiers, they experience, you know, the loss of friends, the witnessing just horrific events, flashbacks, just the mental health of a soldier is very um, important. And we learned about that in our program as well. And those are my nine points that I thought after doing research were important to highlight. These are kind of the biggies of the 
public health challenges during wartime. And it's just so important to learn about them. And I, I feel like I will be a better public health professional, even if I never am in this space for knowing these. And just, I think we can look at situations more empathetically and see avenues of helping a little more clearly when we know the specific issues that someone is dealing with. It's so much easier to efficiently and effectively help someone if you know how they're struggling. Because if you're throwing, you know, mental health resources at a population that doesn't have water to drink, you, know, you got to get the water and then the mental health you know, it's like they're, depending on the issues, there's also an order to things of, you know, you got to put out fires in a certain order to be effective. And I hope that this episode has been educational. It's been um, very educational for me to read about. The next per portion is I want to talk a little bit about the history of issues surrounding public health during war. For my episodes, I always like to do like the science and then the history. So I have a couple, um, incidents from war and um, kind of the public health tragedies about that. So number one, I put the Siege of Leningrad. I thought I knew about the Siege of Leningrad. I, you know, I guess I technically did, but I went on a deep dive. It was horrific. I was reading these just articles and first person accounts and it's shocking how horrific the Siege of Leningrad was. And it wasn't even that long ago. It was from 1941 to 1944. So not that long ago. I mean, people there technically can still be alive. It was horrific. The starvation just, well, let's get into it. So just to kind of recap what it is, the Siege of Leningrad was a prolonged military blockade undertaken by the Axis powers against the Soviet city of Leningrad on the eastern front of World War II, Germany's army group North advanced from the South, while the German allied Finnish army invaded from the North and completed the ring surrounding the city. Basically, long story short, 1.5 million people died, and it was primarily from starvation. So going back to public health challenges during wartime, food, supply chain, it was horrific. There are so many accounts, so many diaries that they found. Um, the cannibalism, I went on a like a deep dive about the cannibalism. There wasn't, there was a lot, but there wasn't as much as I thought there would be. There were um, a little over 2,000 cases of cannibalism, and they were grouped, because you got punished for it, they were, they were grouped into two camps. Corpse eaters and person eaters roughly translated. And the corpse eaters were sentenced to jail because they were eating someone who had already died, whereas the person eaters were killing someone to eat them. Um, and they were sentenced to death by firing squad. And what was really heartbreaking to me was that the average demographic of a cannibal during the siege of Leningrad was, she was a woman, 62% of them were women. And most of them, 90% of them were either illiterate or super undereducated. And most of them had small children. So these were desperate, poor women who were trying to feed their family. 
obviously I don't think you should be a cannibal. I'm not advocating for cannibalism, but just the desperation makes me sad. Um, the stories, really disturbing stories. Um, one story that will haunt me, um, was that a mom smothered her 18 month old to feed the baby to her three other kids. And that was documented by, um, I guess the city of Leningrad, but it was, it was stories like that. I was reading them and I was like, this is too much. Um, and so classic example of a public health tragedy caused by a war. Another one that I thought was really interesting was, um, I'd never heard of it, the Dutch hunger winter. It was a short period of time again, the 1940s were rough y'all. From 1944 to 1945, during which the Dutch were starved um, due to a Nazi embargo of food. And what they did is they studied the children that were in utero during this time. So these children that were um, in utero, you know, they were not born yet. Eventually, you know, ish, 18 years-ish years later, had to register for the military. And then they started studying them from that military registration point on. And really interesting, they were able to study the effects of starvation on a developing fetus. And they found that they had a predisposition, so they said may have, a predisposition to various adult diseases ranging from mental health problems to cardiovascular diseases. So I thought that was really interesting. I'd never heard of the Dutch Hunger Games, or Hunger Games, lol. The Dutch Hunger Winter, um, maybe I had, but I'd forgotten about it. But again, starvation, access to food, access to water, so important. Um, the third one, I've actually kind of mentioned it before when we were talking about um, rape, but the Rwandan genocide, which as a refresher was in 1994 during the Rwandan Civil War. And in just 100 days, about 800,000 people were killed by the Hutu extremists. And the quote, which I read earlier, is that while exact numbers are not available, it is estimated that every surviving female had been raped and HIV infections increased. So again, an example of um, rape during war and the diseases that then come from that. Because it's not, it's, it's a tragedy on multiple levels. It's the tragedy of the rape and then it's the tragedy of um, HIV. And in 1994, HIV was a a horrible death sentence. Um, we have come a long way. I should, I should say a rapid-ish death sentence. Um, we've come a long way with HIV medication and um, I should do an entire episode on that because I just... Being a child of the 90s, HIV and AIDS were just the boogeyman. I mean, they were so scary. And then now, obviously, still not ideal, still scary, but just the treatment options, the prevention, the prep, the, it, it's incredible. Um, and, yeah, those are my three um, examples from history. There are a lot more. But those three just really stuck out to me. We've seen, I mean, it's, it's, history is unfolding before us, whether it's, you know, Ukraine and 
you know, the Russian invasion of that or, you know, issues in the Middle East or in, you know, just there's a lot going on. And so it, it is something that is always pertinent. Public health doesn't sleep. I feel like that should maybe be the, <laughs> the title of this episode. Public health doesn't sleep. And even when it is put on the back burner, it's still barreling forward. And, you know, whether it's disease spread, whether it's mental health spread, whether it's, you know, food shortages, malnutrition, whatever it is, it just, it may not be the biggest fire in the room, but it is still a fire and it still needs professionals to put it out. And um, my hope is that public health professionals and public health organizations are allowed more seats at the table in terms of war and um, responding to the civilians, the innocent civilians of war, and um, you know how to better care for the soldiers that come home after war, and, and just learning more and more about what needs to be done, what can be done, the levels of prevention, the levels of you know to more efficiently and more effectively help innocent people and help save lives, help improve lives, do all the things that public health professionals you know, do domestically and do in their backyard and, you know, do overseas, but doing it during war, which is just such a different environment. It's a heightened, it's an emergency environment. And I just hope that they slash we get more seats at the table. Um, That's my episode. I hope I did it justice. This is such a heavy topic. It's such an important topic. And, um, you know, I'm still learning to podcast. I'm still also, one of the things that I'm learning how to do is how to research these topics so I can off the cuff talk about them without too many ums, but also just accurately. There's a lot of weight on being accurate, and a lot of times facts kind of contradict each other. So you have to say, okay, do I believe this website or do I believe this website? And um, so I'm learning here. I appreciate the grace (laughs) if I got something wrong. But if I did get something wrong, please send me a message. I'm at transmissible pod on TikTok. That's like my main account. I have not made an Instagram for this. I know it's going to push it to people I know. So I'm going to wait until I have a couple more episodes <laughs> and I'm not so green with it. But um, yeah, I just appreciate the listeners. I see you. I can, um, I, you know, I use Spotify as my main platform and you know, then it pushes it out onto the other platforms, but I can see the analytics. I see that, you know, I have some listeners and I just want you to picture that I picture you sitting in here with me and we're having like a discussion. I really value your time. And, um, this is just so fun, but these are heavy topics and it is, it's challenging to talk about heavy topics that I'm researching in a way that is not, um, disrespectful to them. Um, so Yeah, I would just appreciate, I appreciate that you're here and I appreciate that we're all under the mentality that I am learning how to do this. So yeah, shoot me a message. Honestly, even if you're just listening and you're like, I want to shoot a message, shoot me a message. Just say, hello, I'm a listener. I would love that. I would just love to know who you guys are and, um, you know, why you listen to public health podcasts. Maybe it's because it's interesting to you. Maybe this is your, um, sphere of profession. Maybe you're just kind of scrolling through because this topic specifically caught your attention. Um, Whatever it is, I would love to hear from you guys. And um, 
yeah, we go to Alaska tomorrow. Wish us luck. It's going to be cold. I am so excited, though. Speaking of that, you know, CDC has a hub in Anchorage. It's the Arctic – oh, what is it called? It's like the Arctic Public Health Center. I can't remember what it's called. Um, Arctic Public Health is like a very niche, unique thing. It's fascinating. I should do an entire episode on that because um, it's just really interesting. A lot of it is healthcare access. So you have, you know, small towns or villages like hundreds of miles away from, you know, the nearest medical center. There's icy conditions, there's, you know, mountains, there's tundra, and it's, you know, how do you get someone a doctor's appointment? How do you get, you know, an updated vaccine? How do you give birth and stuff like that? So it's really interesting. I would love to do an Arctic public health episode. Um, Yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you guys so much, so much for listening to Transmissible, a public health podcast. And once again, I'm your host, Jessica Stahl. And I'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.